and welcome to the Zenial Dome with me, Essif Sears. And me, Gareth Gwynn. This is the podcast all about Xennials, that's those born between 1977 and 1985, or to put it another way, those born during the career of Dire Straits, the first time round. Because I was really pleased with that, <laughs> and then I found out they did a reunion in 1991 and it broke it. But otherwise, it would be like really good as an intro, <laughs> it would be like spot on. So, Dire Straits, first time round. I think that's right. Great. I've got their Wikipedia in front of me now. You found a Dire Straits. No. Oh, did I try to like, I, I associate with like absolute zenial. As a kid, when my mum had to go out for anything, then my dad would play Dire Straits and give me and my brother wooden spoons and we could like drum along oh. on pots and pans. And me and my brother enjoyed doing it so much. We would be saying to my mum like, are you going out tonight? And if she said no, <laughs> we'd get a little bit sad. Oh, no, I feel like I missed out now. Because my, my dad always used to play music for us, but it was like Bruce Springsteen and people like that. Oh, you could get a wooden spoon and hammer a pot I, I to Bruce guess. Springsteen. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, I don't, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page now and I don't know if the date's quite mad up, so maybe we just gloss over the whole Dire Straits thing. <laughs> It'll resonate with someone, surely. Yeah. Surely. Yeah. I could have done it more between 1977 and 1985, or as long as it took them to make the video for Money for Nothing. <laughs> I love it. Let's go with it. So this is episode six. And for this episode, we've got the brilliant Mark Watson. Yeah, absolutely love Mark Watson. Superb stand-up comedian and novelist. You'll have seen him on um, TV and Taskmaster. Uh, or you, his Radio 4 shows are brilliant. He does a lot of Radio 4 shows, which are live. And that is, I've been in the audience for some of those live from the Radio Theatre at 11pm, which is loads of fun. Um, and uh, oh, in, in Edinburgh, he's known for doing these record-breaking shows, which go on for 24 hours of him on stage doing stand-up and all sorts of stuff happens. Yeah, absolutely fantastic comedian. I was really excited to get him on the show. He was actually one of the first stand-up acts that I saw live and I still remember quite a few of the jokes from that. Um, So this was an absolute treat for me. So this is 1980 and author of the novel Contacts, Mark Watson. Mark, you were born in 1980. That makes you a zenial prior to being invited on the show were you familiar with the term Xennial? No, I was not. I, I've only just recently come to grips with exactly where the dividing lines are between um, millennials. Like I, I, only, I was surprised to hear that I only missed being a millennial myself by a, a matter of months because mm. people use millennial as shorthand for anyone that's about 21 that's using words that I don't like <laughs> or that is on TikTok. Or any, people my age say millennial to mean stuff I don't understand, basically. So I, I assumed that the term meant, yes, significantly younger people than me. As it is, I'm only just on the mm. on the cusp of that. And I did not know that there was a name for people in my situation until, <laughs> until uh, you know. But that's the thing, because I was born in 1981, so I'm officially, technically, a millennial. But then I'm closer to your age than someone who's 10, 15 years younger than me. Obviously, maths. Yeah, yeah, very simple bit of maths there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the problem is the term millennials covers an unhelpfully large number of people, I suppose. So I'm glad to hear we've got our own little... uh, You've got a foot in both camps then. You're one of us, like as in me, but you also get to come go to the millennials 
unboxings or whatever those do. <laughs> that's the sort of thing a millennial does isn't it i assume so yeah i see every time i see the word unboxing i just immediately scroll down so i don't have to worry about what the hell it is so it sounds like this made sense to you once you found out there was this sort of like little generation that crosses the two i, I definitely feel quite distant from uh the well distant from the millennial culture and media and stuff but without being hostile to it i just feel having come into my 40s that i have fans that are, i don't have a sort of huge fan base but what fan base there is is split between a sort of radio four-ish listener group who are older than me in a lot of cases it's people's mums my, my main fan base is people's mums without doubt <laughs> people always say my mum or my dad listens to you in the car rather than i like you <laughs> um but then there's also from being on things like taskmaster or whatnot you get kind of 18 to 21 year old well 18 to 30 fan Britcom fans that generation of um young comedy fans and i i see their conversations on twitter internally and i, I do feel um quite a lot older than those people <laughs> <laughs> the, the speed with which people generate memes and gifs and emojis and just the 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 shorthands that they have for everything again some people very sort of sneery about this i'm not i find it fascinating i mean my kid is 11 in fact and he also is like that the the upcoming generations are the speed with which they turn thoughts into visuals and uh visual gags and stuff is i think it's great it's just i can't i can't do it myself <laughs> the um i did some business on on twitter about it yesterday i, I made a thing out of saying what well, i'm gonna make a meme um and you know there's that one that everyone is doing where it's like uh it's, so we're going to do this, right? And then it's, we are, right? And what is it? Uh, print Anakin. Um, oh, yeah. I noticed everyone was doing that, and I didn't know how to make things like that. So I asked the internet how to do it, got a meme generator, made one, but it still looks shit, and it still <laughs> took me, like, you know, half an hour. And uh, so the way people, but, you know, other people, like my friend Michael, who I do a podcast with, uh, Michael Chakraverti, he's in his 20s. So, uh late 20s but it's still quite a crucial generational difference i think and he's always doing tweets instantly where he's got the exact right gif and i was with him recently and i would say how do you do this how do you generate this these reactions so fast and the answer's common sense on his phone he's got a folder of about 100 different reaction gifs so he's <laughs> it's not actually you know it's not necessarily a psychological difference it's just people in their at that age are literally putting time into archiving wow. everything they're going to ever need but again I can't live like that <laughs> I don't have to put that on my phone because I feel especially when you do comedy I think you you get to become friends with quite a wide range of people yeah so on the South Wales circuit for example I have friends who are in their early 20s and every time I'm messaging with them I have to have Urban Dictionary open on my <laughs> just in case because there will yeah. always be something. And it's not always, because I know Urban Dictionary often is um, to do with sexual terminology and stuff like that. And it's not always that, but I always assume that they're talking about something. <laughs> so I have to double check. To make I think I'm similar. Yeah, I can't say any word in front of people in their 20s without worrying that it's got some sort of other meaning, which is sexual. Yes. <laughs> I tell you what, the people who compile Urban Dictionary could be taking this for an absolute ride. I believe anything it says there. You look up a word like hopscotch and it's like, oh, right, that's actually to do with sex, is it? And it could all be a massive spoof on people, are it? Oh, God. 
and, and it, it gets more like this presumably I've, i understand now what it would be like to be in your 60s and just be looking in total bafflement at the world because <laughs> aspects of it are already quite unfamiliar to me and it's not going to get easier is it no. <laughs> no i remember having an argument with my mum when i was a teenager and she was telling me that i wasn't allowed to do something or, or something or other and I, and I remember screaming at her you don't know everything i know more than you do about this stuff and she actually turned to me and said yeah you're probably right yeah <laughs> and yeah that's definitely where i'm getting now me too i feel like it i feel like it quite a bit my um again my son is 11 so there are many aspects of life in which i still know obviously i'd hope to know far more than him having spent 30 more years acquiring knowledge than him but just he's just got an iphone um and started to become internet conversant and i can see now the wheels in motion which will lead to in five years, him knowing an awful lot more about a lot of stuff than me. And that's, you have to accept that graciously, whether you've got kids or not, because that's just aging. But it's weird. It's a weird feeling. <laughs> yeah. I feel like when you're in your 20s up to about, I don't know, maybe 35, you feel like the world is sort of, you're centred in the in the culture and the discourse. And then there's a point where you just aren't anymore. And you've got to suck that up or resist it furiously. I think that's why there's so many right-wing angry right-wing men not always men but like columnists poisonous columnists in their fifties. I think it is because they've just had a moment of thinking I'm not as relevant as I used to be and mm. that's that's not very we're at least as comedians you've got an outlet you can continue to create but a lot of people that is must just feel like well no one cares what I think anymore and, and that's I think that's when people start to get angry and reactionary <laughs> otherwise known as GB News <laughs> exactly <laughs> GB News is just a, a channel for people that are like well, 20 years ago, everyone agreed with me, and now they don't. What are we going to do about that? It's on 24-7 because no one can set the video to tape it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like resigning yourself to the fact that you are dying. So it's like at yeah. 40 years of age, you're like, well, I'm not going to go on TikTok now because in 40 years' time, I'm going to be dead. I don't think there's any point. I've been talking about this is sort of what the show is. Like you said, the show I've been working up is called This Can't Be It. And I had most of it written before the pandemic and everything. So a lot of this material is only getting older with me. But this is basically what it's about. It's about the fact that all, like everything you don't understand or you feel distance from by age is, as you say, it's just a tiny alarm bell in your brain about uh, aging and death. And none of us can do anything about that. So you either work out ways to continue to enjoy life at every age, or you just live in permanent terror that it's getting later and later i'm the same with tiktok there's my son is always sending me tiktoks to watch and um i because he's got a phone now, i have more interactions with him like that than anything else. i mean i'm uh, they don't live with me i'm uh, divorced so i have about half the week but for the other half he's just sending me these i'll wake up and he sent me a tiktok of like you know a footballer with his face turning into lava or something and it is as they say in Twitter, it's presented without comment. There's nothing, there's no explanation for it. <laughs> or it's him, it's him singing along to a song, but then he, he turns into, a, you know, a cabbage or whatever, whatever it is. He doesn't even, he doesn't even text going, hey, this is funny. He just literally sends that. And I just have to think of something, some way to respond to this. Yeah, draw your own conclusion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just keep thinking, I really hope there is a boomer podcast that is the equivalent of this, which sounds exactly the same. <laughs> And they're talking about things like what WhatsApp or whatever yeah. things we have. But yeah. <laughs> Do you ever feel then that so so you're saying you know it's a fact that you're technically not a millennial? Have you ever felt any affinity with Gen X then? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose like when I read Generation X, the the, the Douglas Copeland book, I, I 
was at university and I definitely had the impression that that I was reading about people older than me because I was basically like that era of we're just getting into online and we're just Mm. whatever whatever I can't remember the book very well I just remember feeling like well this feels like a cool thing to have been in but I wasn't in that either so actually I guess this is what this podcast's about really I never Mm. felt like I was part of Gen X I didn't think there was a um, generation for us the first time I heard the term millennial was only a few years ago and until then I hadn't given much thought to the idea that the generations were um, separate things Mm. but now I think we are quite a distinct group of people because we for a start, we remember being not at all online ever and permanently online. We straddle mm. that. And that is quite a big psychological difference, I think. Um, like the Gen X people fully were still, they were still writing letters to each other and stuff. <laughs> uh, and this, whatever my kids' generation is called, of never remember they're not being the internet. So we've got mm. a foot in both of those camps. And I do think that's quite an interesting position historically. Good. Um, that, that's basically the premise of <laughs> I thought so, yeah. well what we thought we'd do is um we've got some questions to find out how much of a zenial you are Uh so these will sort of i think help place because even within this bracket there are certainly differences can you mimic the sound of a dial-up modem (laughs) well i can certainly remember it pretty (laughs) carefully. the way i remember it was a series of like beep (laughs) <laughs> followed by this kind of <laughs> white noise i think and i remember it being a long if you mimic the whole sound it's like two or three minutes eh? it was a really mm. but yeah the way i remember it was the <laughs> sort of a two-tone screechy sound first and then you knew it was working if it just descended into this like horrible crackling and fuzz and that that is a strange thing again to communicate to this generation the new generation now like even when we had the internet you could just put your computer on and there it was today's wi-fi is is like witchcraft compared with what we had to you had to basically wrestle your modem into acceptance <laughs> not until, until i heard you try and do it then it's just dawned on me but it's the strangest noise to to signify that everything's going okay yeah it, it, definitely, <laughs> it didn't sound like successful tech not did it, at all. Not <laughs> it at all. sounded like a series of machines having a total meltdown yeah it's it's it sounds like you scraped your car against a wall and like, <laughs> yeah. we are, we're, we're good to go it sounds like something in a sci-fi movie that would signify that the systems were all shutting down rather than... Yeah. yeah. It's really funny, actually, because I haven't I hadn't considered that for a while, about the fact that the, the internet wasn't just there when you opened your laptop. And sometimes if you'd shut your computer down and then someone asked, oh, do you mind if I... And I'd be just like, no, sorry, I've, I've just... I've just turned it off. I've just, no, I'm, I'm not, yeah, not putting it back on again. Yeah, that's, yeah. In the same way in the 80s, if your telly was was off, it would it would need 10 minutes notice to stick it back on again. Yeah. And it, certainly when I was first living in London, even, um, the dialogue was slow and so temperamental. If someone rang on your landline, then that was game over. You couldn't have both at the same time. It was stuff like that. Stuff that, again, seems madly primitive now. You could only have one line to the outside world over the course of this pandemic I've, I've been doing you know i've done 24 hour streams that that all relied on i've done loads of long long form stream stuff that relied on having a zoom and a discord or something and my phone and my partner stroke producers got a phone over there and the thought that even 10 years ago well you remember gareth when we first did those 24 hour shows um in edinburgh even we always had a, we'd have a big screen up to try and contact people in Australia and stuff like that. And we would do, we would do this, the stuff that the show is now, now thrives on. We would try and connect via Skype as it was then still is, I suppose. And 
But yeah, the, the rate of success was about one in 10 tries. It just didn't <laughs> work there. The stuff that we can do now is absolutely astonishing, but you just don't think about it. Even like the phones then were Nokia's and the idea that if your computer went down, you could run an entire show just off your phone uh, would have been unbelievable. And so I do think in some ways, if this virus, if something like this had happened 15, 20 years ago, let alone 30, we'd have all been much more isolated and, and unhappy. At least it came at a time when, we're incredibly well connected. Um, mm. I do think it's really interesting psychologically that we all know that in 2005, this would have looked like, as I say, like magic, but we don't feel like that now. We're still pissed off if stuff doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. so you can only imagine that another 15 years, we'll have Christ knows what incredible mm. stuff around us, but we will still feel like it, it doesn't work. We'll, we'll always feel, we'll always be spoiled, basically. I, I do think that's really interesting because I reckon if you were, uh, 70 80 you'd have seen so many of these changes happen mm. that you'd be constantly marveling at it you'd be like the internet's incredible mm. my, my dad's a bit like that he doesn't he's 17 he's like god that's that's amazing isn't it but we're not like that because we grew up with this sense that it, we should have it i think because we were <laughs> on the verge of it yeah <laughs> did you own a mini italian 90 coca-cola football or collect all the free esso coins yes now we're talking i did do yeah, all of this is your your ballpark isn't it i can still picture the white uh, red white and green football with a soft football we had the, the like spongy version of it which you could boot around the house and i also did have a lot of those coins which again things like that are interesting because yeah. you'd have thought that that sort of um like crappy ephemera would have been phased out. I've still got, I don't have the coins anymore, but I still have loads of like programs and football related memory. But it, my son still does like stickers, sticker albums mm. and football cards and things like that. So that that sort of reassures me. The kids do still go for, in 1990, if I had to predict, will there be stuff like collectible stickers in 2020? I would have thought, now nah, we'll probably all have, it'll be all computers and stuff. And what's interesting is it is all computers, but hearteningly kids do still like actual stuff that you can sometimes yeah. there's a fusion between the two like football stickers now have often got a qr code or something which lets you play a new mode on fifa or so there's a bit of you know but basically i think kids will always like stuff you can buy at the supermarket and open it and see what you've got or stuff like that so weirdly that 1990 world doesn't feel as distant in, in some ways as it might do is that the first world cup you remember the first one I remember is 86, although I was pretty young. But um, that's kind of, in, in a way, it's probably part of my sort of lifelong passion for football, I think. It is to do with that World Cup. And and also, I love World Cups and the Euros in particular. Like international tournaments is sort of my, that's my particular wheelhouse. And I, I think it's because, um, yeah, because I was six, I was like just about allowed to stay up for the games. The, the infamous Maradona game, actually, I wasn't allowed to stay up for. But I don't know why my parents decided maybe they maybe they knew England would lose and they thought he won't yeah. do this. Um I, I remember but I couldn't sleep knowing these these matches were on downstairs. Mm. I remember looking at the clock and thinking if I remember going downstairs um and uh my dad just grim faced and I can still remember my mum just said 2-0 Maradona cheated and I just went back silently upstairs. <laughs> um and so as a result, like football and international football had this massive glamour for me because it was like, you're not really allowed this, but you can have glimpses of it. And then by the semis and the final, I was allowed to stay up. So I think, mm. you know, I, mean, I probably would have become a fan anyway of football and rugby and all this stuff because my dad was. But definitely part of why I fell in love with it, it was like I was fed it bit by bit. Like, all right, you might better stay up. Oh, it's extra time. You're up a bit late now. And so by 1990, I'm 10 mm. and 
I'm now definitely allowed to watch everything yeah. but yeah. I'm still aware that if it goes to penalties that's 10 o'clock and that still is past my bedtime really <laughs> so a lot of my early days of football had this kind of uh, contraband thing because it's like you shouldn't really be watching this but go on then and I think that's part of what I, even now sometimes I mean I can go to bed when I, when I like now but still sometimes during <laughs> during tournaments I'm I, if I'm a neutral I sort of always want it to go to extra time and part of it is definitely that thing of like oh we'll, we'll all be up for a bit later yeah. <laughs> let's have the Let's have a long haul here. Like, they have a full 120 minutes plus the little, then the advert break, then the penalties, then the crying. Let's do it all. 1990 is definitely the first World Cup I remember. And I remember we had a chart and our chart had stickers with the flags of the country so that yeah. around, you could put your sticker down. And I remember getting them and looking and realising that the Cameroon, there weren't enough stickers in the pack for Cameroon to get to the final. And, and, and me feeling really bad for Cameroon. Like, oh. Oh, even the people who printed the stickers haven't got the faith. And I think it, it, it meant that that World Cup, Cameroon were the ones who I really wanted to back. And then, of course, Cameroon did go on an amazing run there. They, That's the thing they did. I read they were, they were one of the countries that didn't have enough stickers. And so when they were doing well, I started to back them because I thought, yeah, beat the sticker book. But they nearly did get into the semis there. They were, they were one game away from wrecking the sticker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't really hear much about Cameroon these days. But no, they always, like... They're always there at the World Cup, but you yeah. always, part of you always believes they're, they're going to be like the 1990 miracle working team yeah. again. Um, I've grown up thinking they're a bigger deal than they are, I think. Yeah, because that, that was, a, looking back, a pretty amazing period of history, a two-week period in 1990 where, as you said, 10-year-old kids went from having never heard of Cameroon in their life to being like suddenly everyone mimicking the players of this West African country that have never been in the World Cup before. Amazing stuff, really. And that's those um that thing with moving the stickers around reminds me that I had I used to buy I used to get football magazines and they they used to give give away a thing at the start of the season where that was basically all the league tables and you had like a little tab of paper for each or cardboard, I suppose, and you could you could move them up and down. But and you'd do it for a couple of weeks, but of course it was there's 92 of them and it was unbelievably <laughs> fiddly and hard. But you had to have teletext on and then you're moving <laughs> from 16th to 13th. And that level of admin, I don't think I can just a bit get my kid to fill in a wall chart, but I don't really blame him for not having a 92 piece league <laughs> jigsaw. Things have moved on a bit. From- yeah. Anything that can be done with an Excel macro probably <laughs> shouldn't be then rolled out. Exactly. The yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, that's not kids' idea of fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's really funny, though, is you were talking about all the stuff that you used to be able to get, um, like branded stuff. I trolled supermarkets um, before this Euros looking for a football for my kids and I found some and I got got them one each and I started to think oh god am I just pushing this on them now am I just trying to relive you know Italian 90 through them but they they seem to enjoy it the the only problem is because it's so rare to have Wales in a in an <laughs> in such a big championship similarly to 2016 I bought them all the stuff but they're not allowed to touch them <laughs> Because it might be the last time that we get to be in one of these tournaments. Right. Okay, so yeah, so you've got the... they, it might become collectible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that um, that demonstration mentality, which that's what being Welsh has done to you, uh, I suppose. Yes. Like, you, you can't even enjoy being in the tournament because you're already looking ahead to a time when you won't be anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because I got I got them in 2016. I got them a Panini sticker album each, and they're still in the cellophane. That's brilliant. That's, yeah. That's, until we're out, you're not even touching that, and even then, probably not. 
That's so true. There's a real element of, oh, this will be great to look back on in 10 (laughs) years' time. Yeah, I think international tournaments do have that quality just because they're so short-lived. It's like you get those couple of incredible... like Even even Wales' fairy tale run... Uh, five years ago that still is only a, a couple of matches you know it's, it's it's all gone so quickly and then you just have to wait years for it to happen again <laughs> oh. uh, I, was, I was the same I I was relieved actually my, both my kids demanded Euros um, merchandise when the when the hype was starting around the tournament I I felt a bit like oh I'm that mug that just all right we'll spend 150 quid on this merchandise. but then I thought but this is great actually this is what I was like as a 10 year old it's nice that children are sucked into the, that yeah it, I mean, I still love football at every level, but there's no denying that the um, the Premier League and, and all you know domestic football has this kind of money fueled glitz to it, which didn't have in our day. Whereas I do think world football has a sort of purity to it because it's not really about money. The, the basics, the wall chart, all that stuff is is hopefully the same forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you still find the blue smarties weird and unnecessary? Oh, good question. I've not seen a uh, tuba smarties for a bit. It certainly does feel as if they weren't sufficiently different in taste from other smarties to really be a huge event. I think it's hard to make a case that any smartie tastes that different from another one. Um, but I have to. I think. I think I was kind of excited. I, th- I think I was pleased when it came in. I, I don't think the novelty wore off for me, and I think it might be because. And presumably this is what the novelty was all about. Why it was a good PR move. Smarties had been around forever, like jelly babies or whatever, fruit pastels. And they were just sort of a constant. So I think the idea that you could have that you could have a new Smartie was just like, well, so hang on. The rules can change. It made you realize they could do it. It was like when they brought out a white chocolate Mars bar for a bit. Um, and a dark chocolate one, which I loved, in fact. I like dark chocolate. I remember thinking again, uh, I think I'd had it in my mind that stuff like coke or mars bars and things just basically automatically self-generated but now you're like no hang on there's people there's, there's artists behind this anything is possible <laughs> so basically i think for me the blue smarty like paved the way for for the idea that there could be alternative dimensions of sweets out there <laughs> and there was a lot of that in the 90s i remember a lot of like special editions of sweets and bars and things i, I was a bit of a sucker for that but so I suppose there are still blue Smarties, are there? Or was it? A, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Well, I this... bought tuba Smarties recently, and the colours are all now quite dull. They're all quite Actually, muted. Because I that's think right. They... Last time I did get Smarties, my kids, I, I did register that, and you can't help wondering what sort of shit we were being fed in the nineties. Really, <laughs> almost all confectionery is noticeably less less garish than it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think whatever was in it in the nineties, you're now not allowed. It to is not illegal. Food. Yeah. <laughs> Like there was that fad for Sunny Delight, wasn't there? Oh, um, yeah. It's this sort of like supercharged orangey drink. And I'm pretty sure that soon became illegal because kids used to like jump into the <laughs> lake or something. After they had it. There we- were always articles about people who had turned orange on account yeah. of drinking too much of it. That was a, con- of, that was a constant. Loads of scare stories about it, yeah. And um, But I didn't like it that much. It was so sweet that even as a kid, I thought, I can't really. I remember being slightly disappointed thinking, I want access to the superpowers which this is meant to give you, but I can't really drink this in enough quantity. <laughs> I remember our dentist had signs up around his waiting room warning people off sunny delight. Your kids eat um, yo-yos, those like dried fruit Yes, bars. yeah. So my kids love, especially my daughters, clinically addicted to them. And for years I've been like, 
ah, this is not bad parenting because mm. this is fruit, basically, it's dried fruit. So if I'm going to let them snack 24-7. And then last time I went, I mentioned it because last time I went to their de- to the dentist was like, of course, the worst thing you can do is those yo-yos. Yeah. Oh, right. no. Um, you, you don't give them those at all. Do you, um, oh, very, very occasionally. Yeah, I think it is, apparently it's because, you know, fruit itself contains so many sugars or something. So basically yeah. they've got away with marketing it as, the snack which is fine for your kids and according to dentists it's a massive scam and they shouldn't but anyway it's too late like like, after five years of this i can't suddenly say to my kids uh we're not having these anymore (laughs) yeah they're obsessed with them especially the sour ones and they collect Mm. the cards and stuff that's the thing Um, they've got collectible cards they 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 last you a while as a snack because they're quite chewy so they really do tick all the boxes except it turns out that they're not good for you but as i say I've got the good thing is we all know you only have to see the dentist every so often. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to put her out of my mind until I have to see her again. Give it a three week window where they don't have them on the build yeah. up to the dentist. Yeah. 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 Maybe we'll, yeah, we'll taper them off next time there's an appointment. <laughs> oh, man. Do you remember where you were when Diana died? Yes, I certainly do. Um, it was the question does sound like an accusation a bit, doesn't it? But, uh, <laughs> You've watched as many uh, cop dramas as I have, but uh, <laughs> right? Are you sure? Oh, no, just checking. Just checking. Yeah. And um, you have photographs of where yeah. you were. <laughs> uh, this is a very vivid memory for me. Um, I was seventeen. My brother was thirteen, and it was the summer. Obviously, wasn't it? It was the end of August, mm. um, and my parents had gone away on holiday just then for a week. No, not just them, them and my sisters, because my sisters were tiny, too small to be. But they'd left me and my brother on because we were. It was the first time. Uh, we'd been deemed old enough to just, you don't have to come on this family holiday, you can have the house. So for us, it was huge because uh, a week with the run of the house and we felt enormously grown up, we could just get, well, in theory, we could get takeaways, except we didn't have any money. So we couldn't actually do that. <laughs> we felt like we could if we, you know, <laughs> what we could get was those frozen pizzas from uh, Tesco or something. But even that felt cool because we were choosing our own tea, all this. So it was a real week of like, like a holiday in your own home. Um and we would like play cricket in the garden. We had at that time quite a big garden and we did just loads of sports and games. It was a blissful time. Me and my brother always got on well, but we never before felt that. And then, um, so it must have been the Sunday morning, I suppose, is it? The, 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 my, my brother, but what's odd about it, the memory is my brother woke me up and said, um, Princess Diana has died. And I, I obviously couldn't take it in, couldn't believe it. We put the telly on, they're talking about it, still couldn't really believe it, not because she had any particular significance, but it's just, you just couldn't imagine it. It was obviously, everyone that age knows, it was literally unthinkable. Um, but the odd thing about the memory is, my brother never woke up before me. I was always the one to wake him up, always. And also, even if he did wake up, I don't know why he would put the news on. It's not like we had phones. No one would have told texted him. <laughs> and I've spoken to him since, and he agrees with the memory, but he also can't remember why. So it's one of those odd memories that just don't really fit but but are true perhaps he just woke up for whatever reason and couldn't get back to sleep and idly put the telly on but it's it's odd it's odd that that definitely is how the news was broken to me but neither of us can account for that it doesn't make sense but what it was 13 you don't just put the new maybe you put the telly on looking for something else and they cancelled the program and there's lots of possible explanations but we don't really so that's i I also remember the day of her funeral quite vividly because that was my first kiss, although the events aren't related. Oh, my I, God, um, there's so much to unpackage here. <laughs> I went to my, I had a sort of girl, well, I certainly fancied her, but we weren't officially together, Claire. 
And um, there was a very odd atmosphere around the country that day, obviously, and the funeral was on. Me and my brother were out in the garden again playing football. Didn't really, I couldn't see why you'd watch it. It felt like, I now understand it was a massive moment of national significance, but at that age, I was just like, I'm not watching hours of hymns and stuff like that. Um, so we mostly missed the funeral, but then that night I went to Claire's house and as they say, one thing led to another. Uh, but I, I don't know, 17 is old for your first kiss, but I was very shy and slow starter with this stuff. And um, looking back, I don't know whether the, the atmosphere of oddness and this is a landmark day, I don't know whether that contributed or whether my, my time had just come or what. <laughs> we, we then went out with each other for, we were together for a year and it was all, it all began on the day of, uh, on the day of Claire's funeral, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that because often, you know, people talk about um, significant events like the war and stuff like that, like where people feel like life has changed, that life will never be yeah. the same again. And so they will just have babies and, you know, and yeah. populate. And I, I, I just love this idea that as teenagers, you still had that sense of, yeah, I, you know, we may as well. <laughs> I, I do think it was. I think, I, of course, I could be sort of. Uh, hindsight could be filtering the memory but I, I do think there was a just there was an atmosphere of like wow this is weird it was one of the first times if you're our age that you that you were living something through something you were aware was a you know one of those uh nation changes days 9-11 then a few years later there's a few of those you get I suppose the pandemic's been sort of one long version of that but yeah so I think we were both quite I don't think it was till the day of the funeral itself that, and the build up to it, the insane scenes with the, the flowers all the morning. I think so. It's been not just a day, but a week of thinking, Christ, this is a much bigger deal than I thought. And so I think we were both slightly caught up in that. I think it yeah. might have, I think the, the romance <laughs> might have come from the fact of like, you know, even the 17 year olds going, well, life is short. This isn't forever. Let, you know, <laughs> we were both quite kind of moody, overthinking sort of teenagers. So I, I do feel that maybe the, um, the grave national events did yeah. encourage us to sort of uh, just just go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't um, that hasn't kind of filtered through your your life now though. Like when you go to a funeral these days, <laughs> you don't suddenly you don't suddenly feel the urge to snog someone. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's the only kiss or, or sexual act of any kind that I can accurately pin to a funeral. Yeah. <laughs> I, and it sounds terrible. And there's I have you know all sorts of. Um, nice memories of, of well, not nice memories of but I have lots of favorable images of Diana in my memory bank but it un, unavoidably that is what comes into my head every time she's brought up in conversation so when there was that recent panorama uh, thing I, I I of course thought of Claire and her bedroom and all this business <laughs> the fear of her parents coming in her parents were very watchful I think it's one of the reasons we've never done anything they were the sort of parents that were always outside knocking on the they were very very protective of her uh, but again maybe they were just taking a night off because of the diner business <laughs> <laughs> also I, I what's weird is I'm still in touch with her just about that that girlfriend I we, we remained friends um for life but I haven't spoken to her for months but I still do very occasionally text her on her birthday and stuff but I, I don't know if she is aware that that was our first kiss because I don't know whether we've that's not the sort of thing you really talk about when you're in your 40s and you've both got families and stuff so <laughs> I've no idea if her side of it tallies with mine but I know for certain that after the uh the funeral I I my dad drove me over there we sat awkwardly talking about it and then we had a kiss <laughs> let's hope she listens to this <laughs> I suppose I'd be tempted to tell her I'll be tempted to send it her way because uh yeah. you know there aren't many podcasts that explore our shared 1997 history. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I had sex was 
sort of not till university and that that did not coincide with a major event otherwise you'd have to start asking like you'd have to start asking some questions about my uh queen like, mum died a few years later <laughs> yeah. i'm in the clear do you have a hotmail email address i absolutely do yeah and um so i left uni in 2001 at uni i had my own uh university address my first email address was mm. that it was a um it was a and at the time you just used it to email each other in your rooms <laughs> and, um <laughs> You'd sometimes it was we were still at the stage where you had to print your essays out and put them under the door of the email had very few in that period. I remember seeing instant messaging for the first time as well. It wasn't MSN chat, but it was it was called I seek you, I seek you or something. And it was my mate was a computer scientist. It was his subject, so he knew all about this stuff. And he he showed so he was only down the road in his college, but nonetheless. Uh, seeing words appear on screen in real time I was like this is fucking unbelievable <laughs> I've never seen anything like this just being able to chat like that and um so I had uh, yeah a um an internal email address and then when I had to set one up in 2001 I went for it on Hotmail at the time was cutting edge I think people had stuff like talk 21 or big pond or whatever so I thought Hotmail was cool and um the email address I went for I suppose I won't say on on the podcast but it's quite a stupid one because I did not know how far reaching the, the decision would be. <laughs> now, it was quite a studenty sounding email address because I was a recent graduate. Now I'm in my forties and it's an email address, which if you have to spell it out to an insurance company or the bank or something, you feel like a dick, um, <laughs> but I've never dared replace it. I do have a, I have an alternative one. I've got a Gmail one, which I don't really use. I've, I've, like most people I've, I've have various email accounts for, to absorb junk or mailing lists or, I've even got a work one because we have a production company, but my principal one is still the Hotmail one. And people react as if I'd asked them to, to write me a letter and send a standard envelope. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I, I, I can sort of see that Hotmail is a bit basic compared with, I don't know, Gmail or whatever, but it, the differences aren't that marked. You say you've got Hotmail, people talk to you like, as if you said you had a, deliberately had a bike instead of a car. But yeah. I, I, I don't think that, I certainly don't think that the advantages of switching to another provider are worth the the stress for me of thinking the the longer I go on with this Hotmail account, the more implausible it is that I'd ever get rid of it, basically. (laughs) And also, of course, I suppose I've deleted a lot over the years, but that that is now an archive of everything Mm. my whole adult life. I don't know how far they, they go back. Maybe they automatically delete them, but I've definitely got emails in there from 15 years ago I, I don't think I want to that's the equivalent of a massive shoebox full of letters or something so I, you know <laughs> I, I think it's I, I think it's very unlikely I'll ever replace that unless Hotmail itself just goes down yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny there you mentioned when you t- speak to an insurance company because I was reading the other day about how um, Admiral a couple of years ago was caught charging a higher premium to people who applied with a Hotmail address. What? Compared to any, because they... <laughs> At last, I'm in a minority group. They were profiling people based on their email address. And, well, and they you, believed that if you had, they were, you were more likely to have mishaps. If there was, um, there was, they were doing it through different ways, but on one of them, they put in exactly the same details, one with Hotmail, one with Gmail, and with Hotmail, you got charged 30 quid more. That's because they just presumably assume you're a more dysfunctional person. If you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that insulting, but quite likely accurate as well. <laughs> you know, have that email address and keep it with pride because by having a hotmail.com account, it meant that you were a pioneer when it came to, you know, signing up to emails. Exactly. I'm, I'm not going to switch to one of these newcomers now. <laughs> a lot of people have something like, 
markwatson at me.com or something or you know they've got markwatson.com and it's just so but that always feels a bit a little bit self-regarding to me as well like do you need your own service <laughs> provider or whatever that's called can't you just yeah. there <laughs> i'd find it all like hello at mark.com i don't even know how you get those things but i don't think i'd want it it feels a bit flash to me that it makes you sound a bit too corporate then doesn't it bit, i, I think business. so yeah, yeah. I, I like about my email address that whether i'm giving it to like to sort of a hotel at check-in or if it was Obama, it would still be what is obviously a 2001 email. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned you're the eldest of four children. Was that right? So were you a bit of a trendsetter for your siblings? I think I was. Follow follow what you did. My, so my brother's four years younger than me. Then there was a big gap. And then my parents, uh, well, I think, I think the narrative is my mum persuaded my dad to, have a go at one more but then it was twins twin girls right um, <laughs> so they went from my mum's at this point nearly 40 and they went from two to four kids like that a huge sort of shift in the family so my although I get on well with my sisters and always I always have done we're all quite tight as a sibling unit but um they're a lot younger than me 11 years younger so I had limited I was almost more like another dad figure um mm. but my brother yeah I was uh, four years older so I think most of the fact that he he loves sport and he like writes about sport is his job, in fact, and is and also very similar music tastes. A lot of this stuff, I think, I did basically inflict almost everything I thought on him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we shared a bedroom for a while. We had we did a lot of stuff together. Even uh, as teen, until I went to university, we still had like a shared music collection and stuff like that. And obviously, we've diverged since, but definitely, he definitely lived his. Um, childhood uh, under the sort of supervision of mine quite a lot <laughs> I, think, I, I think there were some perks for that for him like he went to music festivals and stuff way before I would have been allowed to mm. because I was able to get him in or gigs we, we went to a lot of live music and stuff when he was like 12 13 because I, I was his passport into that when I was in 12 13 I did not have an older person to um so I think it's a double-edged sword really you get a lot of advantages as a firstborn, like favoritism. Mm. I'm definitely, I've always been seen as a favourite by the others. <laughs> they have got a point. <laughs> um, but I also, I also, I did open the doors for him in a lot of areas, I think. Mm. What sort of, because you mentioned bands, I'm now intrigued as to what sort of bands you were going to see in that sort of time. Well, as I think, we, I don't know if we have discussed it before, but I was, uh, because of the, the Welsh company we're keeping, we're enormous Super Furry Animals fans. Mm. That was our number one band in the in the late 90s and we went everywhere to see them um not just sfa actually also gorky's uh that whole not quite so much demanding so i did like them but that that kind of unexpected welsh music scene that exploded in the lens we were I was growing up in bristol a lot of the family was welsh we were heavily influenced by welsh stuff anyway you could get to wales easily you could sneak to if or back if you would yeah. <laughs> play your cards right um or spillers records cardiff had a lot of iconic music stuff that we would go to and um and the super furries just came at the right like right place right time in a way because we were at the age where you could become fanboys. Like we went, we would travel. We had, by now you had a mate with a car that would take us to gigs. We, we weren't, I say fanboys. We saw them a lot of times between, I suppose, 96, 97 and about 2003. And I'm still a huge fan of Griff and all his stuff. But, um, but it still would only be a couple of times a tour. Whereas when you go to those gigs, you'd see what actual crazy fans are. People that would be mm. outside stage door every single show. Um, <laughs> But we did, we did a fair bit of that, and we'd go to um, once, for example, we went to 
Port Maddox, somewhere a long way into Wales to see Gorky's, uh, who'd curated this Welsh language music festival. And that was the first time I realised uh, how important the Welsh language as a movement was because everyone there was a, a genuine, was a Welsh speaker. Everything was in Welsh. <clears throat> Although we'd been to Wales properly, we haven't really seen that before. Mm-hmm. Um, all the Welsh we knew was from Super Furry Animals and Gorky's music. <laughs> and then, um, so we did a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, we once went to Port Talbot to see Super Radiator Era Super Furries when the, and the live shows were wild as well. They were a real influence on me becoming a comedian. People often ask, like what comedians did you like growing up and they're actually i don't i normally say stuff like i watch the simpsons and whatever which is true but actually and i don't think this is uncommon i think i wanted to be a comedian because i want because i was at live gigs i, I loved mm. music. like the super furries would always have enormous pyrotechnics or light shows or sat you know surround sound well before people were doing that or they come out in mad costumes or you know weird stuff would happen even before they came on there'd be weird stuff and I loved bands like that that put on a um, huge spectacle. So when I was first doing Edinburgh shows, that was sort of wanted to emulate. Really, I was like, I want, I want to be like you come into the building and straight away. A, a lot of the mad stuff I did in my twenties in Edinburgh, like and continue to do, I think comes from that era of you, mm. all day at school you'd be thinking about it and what costumes will there be in and what will it, what song will they be <laughs> first and stuff like that. Like, again, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of stand-ups are people that would have liked to be a, a frontman of a band but couldn't sing or, or play anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's absolutely no doubt that's it for me. Every time I do a, a tour and my tour poster has, you know, the lead mill or these venues that were, uh, there's quite a few of them, venues that you recognise from band posters. Mm. You always, you feel as cool as you ever are going to feel in your life. <laughs> it's really interesting because it's like, I, I bet we have been to some of those same gigs at the same time. Surely. I was a massive big Super Furries, Gorkies, Catatonia in the early days as well. Yeah, saw them a few times. Yeah, like, and it's like it's it's really weird because when you were Welsh, and I think especially if you were Welsh speaking, you you were not subjected to these things. <laughs> you were encouraged into you know following Welsh bands, and and we were very lucky, I think, in the mid nineties that we had such amazing bands to follow. Yeah, but it was. It, yeah, but it was kind of they were kind of running parallel with what was deemed to be mainstream at the time. So it's like yeah. there were two different things going on. So when I used to find it really interesting, then when I moved to London and say I was going on a date with a guy or something, and then we start talking about music um, tastes and stuff, and I'd I'd say, oh, you know, I really love these bands, and they'd always be really impressed, thinking I was yeah. a bit alternative. But actually, for me, that was my mainstream. <laughs> yeah, interesting, isn't it? It was. I think as as a seventeen year old music snob, it, the the Super Furries were in a real sweet spot for me because in NME terms they were as as cool as it got. But at school, people didn't really know who they were, so you felt like this is this is not for you. This is what I do when I go home. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Whereas like the Manics were were starting to be on top of the pops, and they were a household name suddenly and stuff like that. And and these days it seems very distant, but certainly at the time, a lot of your identity was. Uh, this is for me. You can have your oasis, you or whatever. But I, you know, I've got an alternative to that. But as you say, we again lived close enough to Wales that it it felt like there was this like Welsh mainstream which we were tapping into, and and we went to see Welsh bands that I, I would never remember the name of now, and who and who wouldn't speak a word of English to the uh, audience. And my brother did become conversant in Welsh. He he did learn Welsh to a decent level. He had wow. Welsh mates and stuff like that, um, and. Whereas for me, I was sort of out of the, um, and it's interesting, like you'd, you know, you'd go, it's why I had this like Welsh persona for a bit, I think in this like semi-Welsh thing is because I'd go to those gigs 
which as you say were sort of real cultural celebration and there'd be a lot of flag waving or you'd go and see super furries at glastonbury or reading and it was like it was like being in wales crowd for a rugby match or something like you know it felt like everyone was well and i'd be a part of that but not quite welsh but almost so i'd always feel like ah this is I'm loving this until everyone starts speaking Welsh. And then uh, <laughs> I, mean, um, I remember, still remember um, one of my first real contacts with marijuana was coming back. We were in Port Talbot. We had to get a coach from Bristol. Um, and on the way back, everyone on the coach was older than us because we were kids, basically. I was just about old enough to be allowed. And um, like... 11 like we'd, we'd been drinking we were still weren't used to it so we're just in this daze and your ears still ringing from the gig and then someone just started lighting up a joint in the back of the because again it was the 90s <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a very 90s anecdote <laughs> so 90s, yeah and the bloke said um nothing beats a bit of fucking wackle buckle does it <laughs> and, like, and there's the, I think the first again i was quite a slow starter it was the first time i remember thinking mm, that in the cigarette there's stuff going on here which i don't know about and you know the Super Furries were so, so adopted by that sort of like soft mm. drug culture and such a, a stoner band. But I didn't really know anything about that. It was only when I went to uni and there were more people into those sort of bands. I, I met a community of that. And then I realised, oh, most people that listen to Super Furries have been off their box for 95% <laughs> of the time they've ever heard them. I've been listening to all this stuff completely sober. <laughs> How much will I enjoy it if I am on drugs? <laughs> oh. So is this why in your next uh, tour you're going to turn up in a tank to various I've always, like, <laughs> If I had the sort of budget that arena acts have, I definitely would blow it on having insane stuff happen, I reckon. <laughs> a tank or like eight people in animal costumes or boiler suits that are never accounted for, all that. All that yeah, yeah. Sometimes you see someone come on stage and you'd be like, that guy's not in the band. And you'd never find <laughs> out. <laughs> I do want to ask a question because um, I'm intrigued as to whether you remember these and if they had any influence on you. Do you remember the ITV telethons in the 80s and 90s? Telethons, yes, I do. Basically, the sort of comic relief-esque situation. Yeah. And um, I, I read recently that Michael Aspel presented them for 27 hours. And, I, and I'll and i be honest, that immediately put you in mind. And I was like, I wonder if yeah. Mark Watson was a fan of the, the ITV Well, telethons. I definitely do remember the idea of it. I remember being at my grandma's house and it was, and I remember being seduced by the idea that it was going th- all the way through the night. Um, looking back, I mean, the, the, the 24 hours shows do rely on an enormous amount of um, input from audience members and stuff like that. And, and even then, I've got to be quite sparky. You wonder how Aspel was doing at five in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I do remember being interested in that and interested in... Um, the idea that just the more people phoned in, the more money you could raise. It seems very kind of interesting. Of course, we've still got that mentality, but it's so easy it's so easy to donate now. And Comic Relief is, in particular is such a um, successful, massive machine that you know the amount will always be in the billions, or not in the billions, but that, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it feels very, you're quite mentally divorced from the actual amounts of money. Whereas in those days, the idea of the telephone was still quite new. Mm. Every time they put a thing up saying five hundred thousand pounds, you'd be like, "Wow, that is miraculous!" That is, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but where where did those long shows? Where did the idea for doing those come from? Was it inspired? Because throughout well, the nineties, there was like Simon Mayo's doing the longest ever radio show. Yeah, that's like right. That. I think I must have been slightly influenced by all of that stuff, but I don't remember thinking that any of that. All I remember thinking was going up to Edinburgh couple of years in my early 20s as a student and then as and and what I most loved was that it was a forum for mad ideas and people would get behind it because of this high concentration of 
of obsessed comedy fans and performers. And so I remember saying to my partner at the time, uh, why isn't someone doing a 24 hour show? It's a classic case of an idea where you think someone must be doing this. Mm. And of course there's good reasons why no one was doing it. Stupid <laughs> <laughs> thing to do, but that's the, 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 and I was an unknown comedian at the time, but the reason that I did it is not much more sophisticated than I had the idea. I thought I'd be annoyed if I saw someone else was doing it. Uh, so I'll just do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of the things I've done, a lot of the off the wall stuff I've done in Edinburgh um, and will hopefully continue to do, when it comes back and not even just Edinburgh all the weird stuff I've done in my comedy life has largely just been like would you be jealous if you saw someone else was doing it if the mm. answer is yes then you do it yeah. like um like you know the wrestling that they have in Edinburgh yeah um which is a massive no I couldn't have done that because I don't know anything about wrestling I don't have the means to but every time someone does I love stuff like that I, I've always loved one-off concept things in Edinburgh or, or elsewhere it's just Edinburgh tends to be Melbourne as well you sometimes go so anytime there's a huge event like that I always hope to be involved and um but whether I am or not, I always think, well, what can I do that's like this? I'm egged on by other people. It's not exactly jealousy or I suppose it is com competition, but it's more. I just love to be in an environment where someone has a stupid idea and, and then follows it through, basically. Mm -hmm. And that continues to be part of my philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good philosophy to have. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, and you can do that in Edinburgh because, as everyone knows, people sort of forget about the festival a bit when it's not there. So it does exist in its own thing. So if you did something like that in Edinburgh that was disastrous, it still sort of wouldn't matter when you got home. Mm. So I've always, I've always enjoyed that safety net, basically. People complain about it with the fringe. They say, ah, whatever you do up here, you go home and no one really cares about it. And that can be discouraging, but you can also use that to your advantage. You can do something <laughs> truly stupid and it, people won't be discussing it in, in Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> Part of the point of this podcast is the idea that we are creating the Zenial Dome, which yeah. is a museum of items which represent uh, this generation what would you like to put into the Zenial Dome? Well, now I haven't heard everything that you've previously recorded. Has anyone put in an old-style games computer yet? Um, no. No, they haven't. Right. No. So then it's quite easy for me. I, it would be my, I had a Commodore Amiga, um, which was for a very, very brief period, the height of uh, gaming technology. But that period is about literally about 1992 to 1993. <laughs> 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 and um, well, in fact, I've got I had a couple of Commodores it, 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 in a sense before that I had the uh, Commodore 64 and which was the the contemporary of the Spectrum and the Amstrad. I, actually, that's probably a better thing to put in because that truly is a museum piece because the games were loaded off a tape, as you might remember from the Spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of something which is the quintessential thing of me growing up, it's, it's loading a tape into a player and seeing now loading on a screen and then literally you go away and have your tea and hope for the yeah. best. And then it would come back and very often it just hadn't done anything. The screen was just black. About one in two games you bought, you would you were never destined to play. <laughs> but they only cost, games cost like three quid. So you wouldn't really take them back to the shop either. Because even if you did, they'd give you another tape and it would also be... Um... But what it did mean was that the uh the build was so exciting like if a game did load you'd be so excited because you'd really earned it I, again i see my son put his playstation on you don't even need the equivalent of a disc or a cartridge or whatever now it's all in there it's in its memory mm. and it, you're playing uh, fifa within two minutes of putting it on and i again like a granddad i say to him well you used to have a you used to have to wait 20 minutes to play it b you might not or there'd be games like 
you know, even on the days of discs, there were games, these games like Monkey Island, there were sort of huge adventure games. You'd be halfway into it and then would say, put disc five in and you'd look in the box and go, oh, I haven't got disc five, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> or disc five adds something wrong with it. Or, yeah. or you put disc five in and for no reason, the computer just rebooted itself and you'd be like, well, I've lost a day and a half of work there. <laughs> so I think that's perhaps something that, I'm sure things still go wrong with PlayStation, Xbox, all that thing. But I think today's generation don't, don't know the thrill of mm. uh, playing a game because they didn't have to work for it quite like we did. Yeah. That, I, I didn't have a Commodore 64, but one of my best friends did. And I absolutely remember you would get to his house after school. We'd pick what game we're going to play. You put it on. Then you're right. You go and have your tea. Yeah. And then you come back and you play for two minutes and then you go, oh, I don't like this game. Well, that's the other thing. If, if the game turned out to be shit, it was disappointing because you'd, you'd walk to the shop, brought it back, yeah, got it out of its case, put it in, had your tea, played in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're like, okay, we're going to change games. Right now we've got another 10 minutes. There was, I think it, it did good business for like other toys in the room. <laughs> Just because you have to I, do other things. We were never able to get that addicted to video games in that generation because you couldn't guarantee playing one for more than half an hour before. <laughs> I remember once I once I'd got very very far in a game can't remember what it was and saving a game was so dicey because you had to put a blank tape in and press play and record or Christ knows what very very chancy so I just left it on I left the computer on all night and all the school day which was probably a fire risk or something and when I came back my mum had probably quite rightly turned it off because the battery power pack had been on for like 36 hours but I was absolutely incandescent I was like I'll never see that level of the game again that, that's been my main project in life it took me so long so when I got a console and it at least had some sort of internal memory so it could save your game that was a big moment in my gaming life <laughs> yeah. I no longer had to fear that everything would be wiped every time no, it feels like as kids we were we were angry a lot of the time, but about these things, about your parents not getting what you're trying to achieve with this new technology. Yeah, I think that probably all kids have that feeling, a constant feeling of being misunderstood or underestimated. But it was maybe we were living in a time where your gadgets and games broke all the time as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember my mum constantly saying, well, I don't even know why we have this computer. It causes more harm and it causes more tears than anything else. And I was just like, have it because it's the most wonderful machine in the world. But I'm angry because it's also shit. <laughs> what was your go-to game then what what was the, the game that you used to play a lot yeah i had a lot of football games and there was unsurprisingly there was one called sensible soccer which um became sensible world of soccer so that had all the teams all the players it was an absolute football nerds paradise and my brother and i played that for hours and hours you'd have you'd play uh, tournaments, stuff like that. It went down to a level of football you'd never seen before. Like, well, you could play the Welsh League. I remember playing like Aberystwyth against Connors Key and games wow. you could not play another because it had been made by mad football nerds. I don't think this would ever happen now because the turnover of the games is so fast now. It's got, but um, so there was that. And then, yeah, the other main type of game I loved was these gigantic role play type adventures where you went on a quest and you never finished it. It went on for absolute months and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think I ever completed one of those. I had games like that throughout my teenage where, you know, you have to go and pick up this potion and take it somewhere else. And the guy gives you all those magical type adventures. Mm. Um, I just don't have time to be a gamer anymore, I don't think. I don't know. But my, my kid still is. He plays these games. And I'm amazed by how advanced they've got now. But mm. I just don't know how you'd... I see people who are gamers that are going like, ah, I played this whatever... What's it called? The Last of Us or these games? And it's like... 
great game, but it's still only about 30 hours game plan. I'm like, you probably where, where, where <laughs> 30 yeah. hours from? Yeah. I'm doing a show that lasts that long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose if every time I decided to do one of these marathon shows, I just play one of these games, I suppose that'd be one way of doing it. It's funny though, isn't it? Because it's like, for me, it's it's how realistic these games are now. So, oh, yeah, so, it's mad because when I was younger, I, I was a massive big um, computer games fan and we had an Amstrad. So yeah. um, Chucky Egg and Sorcerer, Sauc- yeah. I think, and Kane and, and then Echo the Dolphin and then came Sonic and Mario. I and remember stuff like Echo that. the Dolphin and Sonic, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so all these things, like, and I, I loved them and I was one of these kids who could sit there for hours playing. But I remember, because my brother is eight years younger than me, and he's a massive, um, big computer games fan. And he got Grand Theft Auto. I can't remember when this was now. Yeah. And I played it. Oh, my God. (laughs) I remember driving. I played it for like two hours. And then I had to drive from my parents' house in Bow Street into Aberystwyth. You felt like you still were. (laughs) I felt like I could run someone over. I felt like, oh, that person on that. Yeah, I could just turn my car and just plow into them it was scary it is astonishing my son sometimes does this thing where he shows me youtube montages people have put together with things like fifa or these wrestling games from our day from like 1992 (laughs) to the present day uh games which you imagine remember being quite advanced but so you're looking at games from your own youth going with him going i mean how did you even play that look at that it's rubbish (laughs) and he, he He's got a point because the games were just as fun, but the, the photorealism compared with what we then thought were fancy graphics is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Sum up what we do. We've got a set of either-or questions that we yep. like to fire at people, and you're not meant to think about these too much. We want your gut reaction okay, yep. to find out where you stand on various issues. So we'll do these very quickly. Chew it or opal fruits? Opal fruits. Scruple, scramble, or mousetrap? Oh, I think mousetrap, yeah. Mario or Sonic? Oh, it was definitely Sonic. I was a Sega guy in the 90s. <laughs> Jumper tied over your shoulders or around your waist? Around the waist? I don't know why, but I think if you tied it around your shoulders, people took the piss out of you at school more than around the waist. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, tie-dye or stonewashed denim? I had tie-dye stuff right into university, yeah. <laughs> um, on footballers, moustache or mullet? Oh, good question. I think it's mullet because of that that 1990 Chris Waddle type look. I think a, a lot of Italian 90 I associate with mullets. Yeah. Uh, Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera? Uh, yeah, Britney. Aguilera passed me by a bit. Maybe I was just slightly too old by that point. Uh, lager top or cider and black? Cider and black because cider was my, eventually my portal into booze. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gel or mousse? Oh, I had gel, yeah, my, because mousse was what your mum made. My mum was like, put mousse in your hair. So for me, mousse was like the saddest word possible. <laughs> By contrast, gel was advertised in a way that looked like it was for dudes. So I was yeah. gel all the way. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, quicksand or spontaneous combustion? <laughs> Def- I'm sure this has come up before, but definitely quicksand. Like everyone, I thought quicksand <laughs> was a fairly common part of life because of my reading. <laughs> I'm very disappointed by how little quicksand I've encountered in <laughs> relative to how much there was in books. Um, and that's it. Thank you very much, uh, Mark Watson. How can people find out about what you're up to next? Oh, the main thing is Twitter, Watson Comedian yeah. on Twitter, which again, that's a good sign of, it's a fitting 
parting note for how old I am. The reason it's Watson Comedian is because someone already has Mark Watson because some more tech-savvy bloke got it before I was on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That was the wonderful Mark Watson. I really had fun with that episode. Um, So many topics covered. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, If you enjoyed that, you can see Mark on tour. You can buy his novel, Contacts. You can get hold of that. Or I would imagine, have, from listening to that, you will also go onto Spotify and listen to the Super Furry Animals because he's such a great advocate for the band. Yeah, definitely. And my absolute favourite part of that episode was his um, his story about his first kiss. I just I love how key national or international events can cause you to act in <laughs> in spontaneous ways. In such a spontaneous <laughs> manner. I. I am constant. I'm really enjoying through the series the stories we are getting from the question, "Where were you on the day Diana died?" Because everyone seems to be doing so. That there's always something significant. People are on holiday, or they remember something. They were in a strange place for a time. No one seems to have gone. It was a normal day. No one no. seems to be having a normal day when it happened, and then it no. happened. And everyone um, remembers it as well. They remember oh hearing about it. I, I, really I'm do. looking forward to the day when we have a guest on and they'd be like, oh, what? Diana's dead. Which Diana? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So if you want to get in touch about anything Mark talks about, or oh, tell us where you were when Diana died, uh, thezennialdome at hotmail.com, or you can send us a tweet at thezennialdome. We should go through some of this now um there was a tweet you particularly wanted to mention wasn't there there was so um one of our listeners mark got in touch on twitter and he said that he's been listening to the series thank you very much and that it's reminded him of something he occasionally thinks about which is the video man and apparently um he's from Aberystwyth, and in the 90s there was a man who drove a van of rental videos um and I, I don't have any recollection of this. I grew up in Aberystwyth in the 90s as well. Maybe the, he just didn't come out to Bow Street. Oh, right. <laughs> he had a very strict patch. Maybe. Um, Did you have anyone like that? N- no, I remember when we lived near Neath, uh, there was the library van, the, the one that you would associate with books. I remember yeah. that very well. And then when we moved out to the country, we didn't get... A mobile library van, but we did get a guy selling fish right. who came round. <laughs> who I do remember. This is an odd memory, but he would come round and just knock on the door and go, "Do you want any fish?" And he'd come round. I can't remember how often. Maybe once every month, once every two months. And then we didn't hear from him for like three years. And then one day he knocked at the door at like ten p.m. and went, "Do you want any fish?" And it, it like. <laughs> As though no time had passed. As though that was the most normal thing in the world. I love like, no, that. No, no, we don't. So then someone called Daniel Davis said that he had a video van <laughs> in a village near Carmarthen. Um, and every now and then I watch a film I first saw via the video van and the memories come rushing back. I'd love to know what those videos were. Because I can't imagine there would have been a high turnover with those videos. <laughs> No, also I'm just thinking about all the memories come flooding back, but when you're sitting watching the film, it would have been the same however you sourced the film, unless the video stank of petrol. Have you had any correspondence then in the last week? I'm very excited to say that uh, I've had a message from Ian, who also remembers Wonder Bunny. 
Yay! Which I was really pleased. So if, <laughs> if this is the first episode of this show you've um, ever listened to, my dentist, when I was growing up, created his own cartoon character, which he would draw. He then made videos of, which he showed in the waiting room of the dentists. The character was called Wonder Bunny and was a bunny who ate a magic carrot and it made his teeth very strong. Um, and I drew a picture of Wonder Bunny and we put it on the Zenial Dome Twitter and Instagram pages. Uh, and the drawing wasn't great, but I think it was enough to for people to go, if you knew, you knew. And, uh, and Ian knew. And he said, I remember Wonder Bunny intertwined with Tom and Jerry cartoons and Mike Oldfield tubular bells. Mr. Peter Lloyd was the dentist. Now, that was a detail I'd forgotten, but the moment he said, it came right back. Yes. Uh, so there would be a Tom and Jerry cartoon and then there would be Wonder Bunny, which was like still images, which the dentist narrated. And then in a very strong Neath accent, I remember that. And then, uh, which should have given away to me that it was just a Neath thing. Because I grew up thinking that everyone had Wonder Bunny. But the fact that he sounded like everyone else in the town, that, that should have been a giveaway to me. And then the other thing they did is that there would be Tubular Bells would play. And uh, the ba 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 that bit, and then messages would appear on the screen about why you should keep your teeth clean, and then you would get very grainy footage of great moments in history, like Charles Diana's wedding, the moon landings, JFK doing a speech, possibly someone like Winston Churchill's funeral. There would be these like great moments in history, and they would just appear on the screen in very, very grainy footage. And then a message would come up saying, we've been looking after your teeth all these years. <laughs> um, so thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ian, for remembering Wonder Bunny. I'd love to see a picture, an actual picture of Wonder Bunny, but I have no idea how I would get hold of one of those because um, surprisingly, it's not on YouTube. Oh, I'm, I'm just genuinely pleased that this wasn't just something born from your imagination no. No, run, <laughs> th- that we were having to humor week on week <laughs> <laughs> uh, well um get, you can get in touch about any of these things if your dentist ever created a cartoon character uh the zenial dome at hotmail.com we're also the zenial dome on twitter we're the zenial dome on myspace and we are just zenial dome on instagram and that's the lot isn't it it is the lot brilliant should we uh we'll let people know who's up next week Yes, please. If you and Edit sit in time, it's Izzy Sutty. <laughs> and we've already recorded it, so uh, and it's yes. great. There's loads of re- oh, it's going to be brilliant. Izzy's. Yeah. Uh, it was really exciting to get Izzy on the show. She's fantastic, and um, yeah, she's with us next week. Um, yeah, so um, do join us for that. Great. Goodbye. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>